At this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel 9. Daniel 9. And to give honor to our Lord and to His Word, we'll stand if you're able. And as we read together, Daniel 9, starting at verse 20. This is God's holy word, Daniel 9, 20. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was ensued that I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit to understand and receive this, your word. We pray that you would help me to be able to preach and teach this, your word, in a way that's pleasing in your sight. Help us in this, we ask, for we pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. What would it be like for an angel to come and preach the gospel? Can you imagine an angel from the realms of glory coming to preach the holy gospel? 
That's what we have here. We have an angel, Gabriel, who's sent and who gives the preaching of the coming of the Messiah here in this text. Now, what's interesting is if you notice Daniel, Daniel says, I saw a man, Gabriel. It doesn't say angel, but we don't, he doesn't really know that this is an angel yet, but however we find out later in the, New, in the New Testament, there's an angel named Gabriel who goes to Mary and foretells what again? The coming of the Messiah to be born of her. But we'll look, we'll look a little bit more at that later. Now, the beginning of chapter 9 through 9 verse 1, really all the way through 21, is a rather long prayer of Daniel. It is a glorious, magnificent example of a prayer of confession of Daniel. It is, you could say, so magnificent that even heaven heeded this prayer of Daniel. How do we know that heaven heeded this prayer of Daniel? Well, it says... That even when Daniel began to pray, that the command came from heaven for him to go forth and to meet Daniel. So we know that this prayer is something that was um, received in heaven. Now, what was Daniel praying for in this prayer, prayer of confession? He's praying for the past sins of his people, the past sins of Israel that brought them into this terrible condition of being uh, in captivity but he's praying also for his own sin. He's praying for the present sin of his own people, and he's praying for God's mercy. He prayed for God's anger and wrath to turn away from Jerusalem, God's holy mountain. In verse 17, he prayed asking for God's face to shine upon the desolate sanctuary. So how is it desolate? It was totally destroyed. It, it was leveled to basically only a, not even a foundation really left it was it was in total ruins but he's asking for god to shine his faith his face upon the desolate sanctuary and again we know that he heard these prayers now this these following verses in 20 through 23 give a little bit of the context of gabriel's going to daniel and what's going to be revealed to him look at verses 20 through 23 now, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O oh Daniel, I have come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision." And what follows after this is the words of Gabriel preaching the coming of the Messiah, the coming of um, the eternal Son of God. Um, think about this. 
Daniel had an upright life and he was highly esteemed by heaven. Did this mean Daniel was a sinless individual? No, because notice what he says in the beginning. He was confessing his sin and the sin of his people. But even though he was confessing his sin, which all men sin, every one of us sin, he was a man who had, you could say, kept a short account before his God in confessing sin and doing so in a very beautiful fashion. So here we have from verses 24 to the end of chapter 9, Gabriel's message wherein he foretold the Messiah. Now before we look at some, I know this is a long introduction, but before we look at the main points here, I, I want to give you a caveat. This mention of weeks and times, I'm not going to explain in all this because even Calvin wrote this. Calvin wrote, This passage has been variously treated and so distracted and almost torn into pieces by the various opinion of interpreters that it might be considered nearly useless on account of its obscurity. Hmm. Well, it doesn't mean that we should just stop looking at this passage because Calvin says it's been so obscured uh, by many interpretations. I'm not going to go through and try to give you the times and the weeks and say, well, this is how we're going to calculate all this, but I am going to try to give you how the Messiah is shown forth in this text. And uh, we're going to look at that in a couple of things. The first thing I do want to mention is that we're going to look at prophecies. The first main point is prophecies concerning what the Messiah would accomplish. Prophecies concerning what the Messiah would accomplish. And then later, prophecies concerning the rebuilding. And then later, the destruction of the temple. So we're looking first at prophecies concerning what the Messiah would accomplish. Let's look at this first verse of the angels preaching. Verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Okay. All right. Calvin analyzed the different interpretations, and he did point this out. He said that in considering the prophet to reckon weeks, not by days, but by years, according to Leviticus 25. This is something that will come up time and time again. I want us to just turn there. Leviticus 25. So if, if you study this passage, many of the people who interpret it look, always point to Leviticus 25 as an evidence that sometimes it might need to be interpreted not as days, but as years. So Leviticus 25, verse 8. To give you a little context, this is concerning the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. It says in verse 8, You are also to count off seven 
Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. So the interpretation of this passage here in, in Leviticus 25 is what a lot of the commentators and a lot of the, the scholars look at when analyzing Daniel 9. So to say that when it's talking about these weeks, it's not really days in questions, but it's really years in questions. So concerning this prophecy regarding the Messiah, I want us to look at verse 24. Concerning Messiah, there will be made an atonement for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness. Verse 24. So here in this passage, Daniel is getting the preaching of the angel who says that there will be coming an atonement for iniquity and a bringing in of everlasting righteousness. Now, why is that important? We know the Jews had a day of atonement. They would come in, they would bring in the animal sacrifices, they would sacrifice these animals, and the, the high priest on this great day of atonement would sacrifice on behalf of the people. But then we find out in the New Testament that the blood of bulls and goats can never truly take away sin. These priests who had to offer sacrifices not only for their own sins and then for the sins of the people, did so year after year after year after year after year, showing forth that it was not a full, complete atonement for sin. So in this passage, there's a foretelling of one who would make atonement for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Verse 24, that is what happens with what Jesus has done for us. Look at Romans 3. Romans 3, um, starting at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the law as a schoolmaster. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest. It has been showed forth, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, like Daniel. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith.
faith in Jesus. The cross of Jesus was absolutely necessary for God to remain just, but also to be the justifier of the one who puts their faith in Jesus. Jesus came in to bring everlasting righteousness. How can you have everlasting righteousness? Isn't it enough to just be forgiven of your sins? Not according to what Scripture says. Scripture tells us, and this is in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him, that is in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's what, it's what Luther called the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin on the cross, but his obedience is counted, reckoned, considered, belonging to the saints of those who put their faith in Jesus. So not only did he make an atonement for sin, forgiveness for sin, paying the penalty for sin, but he also brought in everlasting righteousness through this Messiah. Verse 26, back in Daniel, Daniel 9, verse 26 says that there will be a time when the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Verse 26. When Jesus was cut off from the Father, that was the first time in all of history that Jesus lost communion with the Father. Can you imagine Jesus existing in perfect, holy communion with the Father as the pre-incarnate Son of God? He becomes man. He dwells among us. But for the first time in his existence, his eternal existence, he was cut off from the Father. That's why he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he hung upon the cross? He was rejected by his own. He was rejected by man. And he was even rejected by his Father on the cross. The Messiah was cut off and for a time had nothing. Verse 27 mentions their making of a firm covenant. And in Doctors uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their study of Daniel here, they wrote this. The confirmation of the covenant is assigned to him, that is, to, to Christ. Also, according to Isaiah 42, 6, I will give thee, this is the Father speaking of the Son, I will give thee for a covenant of the people. We're told that Jesus would be given as a covenant for the people, Isaiah 42, 6. And that pairs with what we study in Jesus Christ in his giving of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. He says, the New Testament, in my blood, speaking of the wine, which represents his blood shed for many, the New Testament, the new covenant in his blood. So Jesus is one who makes a firm covenant the God makes a firm, a firm covenant through His Son, through us. It is a covenant that cannot be revoked. And then later, He goes on in Daniel 9, 
and tells of the prophecies concerning the rebuilding of the temple and its later destruction. Look at verse 25. We're going back and forth here, but there's a mention of a rebuilding of the temple in verse 25. A decree will be given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That is pointing to the same thing that is foretold in Isaiah. Let's turn to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. So in, in Daniel 9, there's the mention of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. In Isaiah 44, starting at verse 28, we find out the means in which this will come to pass. This is God speaking in verse 28 of chapter 44. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will, he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she shall be rebuilt, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Chapter 45. Thus the Lord, thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed, whom I have taken by my right hand, to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor that you have not known, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. Okay, so stopping there. This is a passage that is so amazing that God is foretelling the coming of Cyrus who will one day make a declaration that the people will go back and rebuild Jerusalem. That this Cyrus will come and make a declaration that they will lay the foundation of the temple. But the fact that this is in Scripture has led to some, what you call, um, liberal scholars to say, there is no way that Isaiah could have foretold this in this particular fashion. It must have been written by two Isaiah, two people. There's, there's, there's not one author, Isaiah, who wrote this because it could not have been foretold in this particular fashion even before the man was even born. But it was. It was. This is, this is an amazing passage, really, that shows forth the power of God in the fulfillment of prophecy that these things came to pass. And remember, when it says here, again, verse 28, He declares of Jerusalem, She shall be rebuilt, and your temple, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. It's the same thing that's mentioned here in Daniel, that 
it says here, a decree will be given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Who will the decree come from? Cyrus the Great. Okay. The next thing, there's prophecy here about the rebuilding of the temple. But there's also prophecy of its later destruction. And it says in verse 26, there will be a time to come when the city and sanctuary will be destroyed. In verse 26. Now, how is this? When did this come to pass? It came to pass, we understand, according to historians, in the destruction of both Jerusalem and that second temple in 70 AD. Jesus, you remember when he's accompanying his disciples and they're looking at the temple and they're gawking in amazement. It really was a glorious sight. When Herod rebuilt the temple, he did so in such a fashion that was, it was not just nice. It was magnificent. Uh, Josephus, in giving his description of the temple, said that there was so much gold laid on the walls of the temple, overlaid, we call that gold leaf, where you take gold and you, you lay it over the, the outer covering of the stone. There was so much gold on the outer covering of the temple that when the sun was shining bright upon the temple, you, it was hard to look at it because it would shine and blind you. That's an amazing amount of gold. So when the disciples are looking at the temple and they're, they're gawking in amazement at how glorious and beautiful it was, Jesus said, yeah, you see this temple? Not one stone will be left standing upon another. Jesus and Daniel foretold the destruction of the temple. Well, actually, it's not Daniel. It's actually Gabriel here speaking to Daniel. But the destruction of the temple was foretold by Jesus, that one, not one stone would be standing upon another. And from what I remember hearing from Josephus is that the Romans, as they sacked Jerusalem and they sacked the temple and they burned it, um, a lot of that gold melted down to the very foundation with, with that intense heat of fire. So how are you going to get the gold if it's melted down to the foundation unless you remove every stone one from another to get down to the very base of the foundation to get to the gold at the, at the base of the foundation? And that's how, that's the practical way in which it came to pass that Jesus' words were true, that one, not one stone was left standing upon another. Complete destruction. Look at verse 27 of today's text. At the end it says, There will be a complete destruction. And one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So the temple will be totally, completely destroyed. It will be made desolate why is it in God's sovereignty that he wanted that temple destroyed I would say because of Jesus if Jesus came to make a final sacrifice for sin to be the Lamb of God to make the ultimate sacrifice for sin it's not pleasing 
for God to have allowed that temple to continue where animal sacrifices and other sacrifices were going to be given over and over and over again when the final sacrifice had already come in Jesus Christ. That's why we, we read in verse 27, there will be a stop to sacrifice and grain offering because the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin came in the person and work of Jesus. Therefore, we shouldn't want to have that temple having animal sacrifices any longer. I've heard some, I've heard one young man who I, I, I love dearly that I went to college with, and he, he mentioned, I don't know where he got this crazy interpretation, maybe some dispensational commentator somewhere wrote this, but he said he longed for the day when Jesus would be back in that new temple that I guess maybe they're, they're, they're prophesying, someone's prophesying that the, the, the mount where the, the dome of the, of the rock is built, the Muslim mosque on top of the mount, that it would one day be removed and there would be a new temple built, a new grand, beautiful, glorious Jewish temple. And listen to this. People interpreted this in understanding that they thought that this guy believed that one day Jesus would go back into that temple. He would wear the, blade, the breastplate of Aaron and he would be making animal sacrifices again. What? Jesus wearing the breastplate of Aaron, making animal sacrifices in a new temple after his return? It's preposterous. When Jesus himself made the, the one and final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice for sin, that would be an utter blasphemy. So brothers and sisters, we're told that the Messiah was cut off. He was cut off from the Father so that you would not be cut off. Have you put your faith in Him? Have you trusted that He has made the ultimate sacrifice that made all other sacrifices insignificant, stopping the sacrifices and the grain offerings at the temple because He's that one sacrifice? Are you trusting in Him as your Lord and Savior? If you are not, Ask God to give you faith that you would trust and receive and believe upon Him. And through Him, you would have that glorious covenant of life through Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Father, for this, your holy word. We thank you that even the angel Gabriel foretold the coming of the Messiah to Daniel and then later again to Mary that she would be given a child and that she would bear forth a son who would be called God with us, Emmanuel. And we thank you for that holy covenant that you've given us through Jesus our Lord. Help us to put our faith in him, to trust in him, that you would establish your covenant with us and with our children after us. Give us faith to believe and to trust and to receive these wonderful words. 
given by your holy angel Gabriel. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, let's turn to 212. Come thou almighty king, 212. <clears throat> 